0: Book the first, part two of Birds of Prey by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3: Mr. and Mrs. Holiday. Mr. Sheldon's visitors arrived in due course. They were provincial people of the middle class, accounted monstrously genteel in their own neighborhood, but now in no wise resembling Londoners of the same rank mr thomas holliday was a big loud-spoken good-tempered yorkshireman who had inherited a comfortable little estate from a plodding money-making father and for whom life had been very easy he was a farmer and nothing but a farmer a man for whom the supremest pleasure of existence was a cattle show or a country horse fair the farm on which he had been born and brought up was situated about six miles from Barlingford, and all the delights of his boyhood and youth were associated with that small market-town. He and the two Sheldons had been schoolfellows, and afterwards boon-companions, taking such pleasure as was attainable in the Barlingford together, flirting with the same provincial beauties at the prim tea-parties in the winter, and getting up friendly picnics in the summer picnics at which eating and drinking were the leading features of the day's entertainment. Mr. Halliday had always regarded George and Philip Sheldon with that reverential admiration which a stupid man, who is conscious of his own mental inferiority, generally feels for a clever friend and companion. But he was also fully aware of the advantage which a rich man possesses over a poor one, and would not have exchanged the fertile acres of Hiley for the intellectual gifts of his schoolfellows. He had found the substantial value of his comfortably furnished house and well-stocked farm when he and his friend Philip Sheldon became suitors for the hand of Georgina Craddock, youngest daughter of a Barlingford attorney, who lived next door to the Barlingford dentist Philip Sheldon's father. Philip and the girl had been playfellows in the long-walled gardens behind the two houses, and there had been a brotherly and sisterly intimacy between the juvenile members of the two families. But when Philip and Georgina met at the Barlingford tea-parties in later years, the parental powers frowned upon any renewal of that childish friendship. Miss Craddock had no portion, and the worthy solicitor her father was a prudent man, who was apt to look for the promise of domestic happiness in the plate-basket and the linen press rather than for such superficial qualifications as black whiskers and white teeth so poor philip was thrown over the bridge as he said himself and georgie Craddock married mr halliday with all attendant ceremony and splendour according to the lights of barlingford gentry but this provincial bride's story has no passionate record of anguish and tears the barlingford Juliet had liked romeo as much as she was capable of liking anyone but when papa Capulet insisted on her union with paris she accepted her destiny with decent resignation and in the absence of any sympathetic father confessor was fain to seek consolation from a more mundane individual in the person of the barlingford milliner nor did philip sheldon give evidence of any extravagant despair his father was something of a doctor as well as a dentist and there were plenty of dark little vials lurking on the shelves of his surgery in which the young man could have found mortal drugs without the aid of the apothecary had he been so minded happily no such desperate idea ever occurred to him in connection with his grief he held himself sulkily aloof from mr and mrs halliday for some time after their marriage and allowed people to see that he considered himself very hardly used but prudence which had always been philip sheldon's counsellor proved herself also his consoler in this crisis of his life a careful consideration of his own interests led him to perceive that the successful result of his love-suit would have been about the worst thing that could have happened to him. Georgina had no money. All was said in that. As the young dentist's worldly wisdom ripened with experience, he discovered that the worldly ease of the best man in Barlingford was something like that of a canary-bird who inhabits a clean cage, and is supplied with abundant seed and water the cage is eminently comfortable and the sleepy respectable elderly bird sighs for no better abiding-place no wider prospect than that patch of the universe which he sees between the bars but now and then there is hatched a wild young fledgling which beats its wings against the inexorable wires and would fain soar away into that wide outer world to prosper or perish in its freedom before georgie had been married a year her sometime lover had fully resigned himself to the existing state of things and was on the best possible terms with his friend tom he could eat his dinner in the comfortable house at Highley with an excellent appetite for there was a gulf between him and his old love far wider than any that had been dug by that ceremonial in the parish church of barlingford philip sheldon had awakened to the consciousness that life in his native town was little more than a kind of animal vegetation the life of some pulpy invertebrate creature which sprawls helplessly upon the sands whereupon the wave has deposited it and may be cloven in half without feeling itself noticeably worse for the operation. He had awakened to the knowledge that there was a wider and more agreeable world beyond that little provincial borough, and that a handsome face and figure and a vigorous intellect were commodities for which there must be some kind of market. Once convinced of the utter worthlessness of his prospects in Barlingford, Mr. Sheldon turned his eyes Londonwards, and his father happening at the same time very conveniently to depart this life philip the son and heir disposed of the business to an aspiring young practitioner and came to the metropolis where he made that futile attempt to establish himself which has been described the dentist had wasted four years in london and ten years had gone by since georgie's wedding and now for the first time he had an opportunity of witnessing the domestic happiness or the domestic misery of the woman who had jilted him and the man who had been his successful rival he set himself to watch them with the cool deliberation of a social anatomist and he experienced very little difficulty in the performance of this moral dissection they were established under his roof his companions at every meal and they were a kind of people who discuss their grievances and indulge in their little differences with perfect freedom in the presence of a third, or a fourth, or even a fifth party. Mr. Sheldon was wise enough to preserve a strict neutrality. He would take up a newspaper at the beginning of a little difference, and lay it down when the little difference was finished, with the most perfect assumption of unconsciousness. "'but it is doubtful whether the matrimonial disputants "'were sufficiently appreciative of this good breeding. "'They would have liked to have had Mr. Sheldon "'for a court of appeal, "'and a little interference from him "'would have given zest to their quarrels. "'Meanwhile, Philip watched them slyly "'from the covert of his newspaper "'and formed his own conclusions about them. "'If he was pleased to see that his false love-path "'was not entirely rose-bestrewn, or if he rejoiced at beholding the occasional annoyance of his rival he allowed no evidence of his pleasure to appear in his face or manner georgina craddock's rather insipid prettiness had developed into matronly comeliness her fair complexion and pink cheeks had lost none of their freshness her smooth auburn hair was soft and bright as it had been when she had braided it preparatory to a barlingford tea-party in the days of her spinsterhood she was a pretty weak little woman whose education had never gone beyond the routine of a provincial boarding-school and who believed that she had attained all necessary wisdom in having mastered pencock's abridgments of goldsmith's histories and the rudiments of the french language she was a woman who thought that the perfection of feminine costume was a more antique dress and a conspicuous gold chain she was a woman who considered a well-furnished house and a horse and gig the highest form of earthly splendour or prosperity this was the shallow commonplace creature who philip sheldon had once admired and wooed he looked at her now and wondered how he could ever have felt even as much as he had felt on her account but he had little leisure to devote to any such abstract and useless consideration. He had his own affairs to think about, and they were very desperate. In the meantime, Mr. and Mrs. Halliday occupied themselves in the pursuit of pleasure or business, as the case might be. They were eager for amusement, went to exhibitions in the day and to theaters at night, and came home to cozy little suppers in Fitzgeorge Street, after which mr halliday was wont to waste the small hours in friendly conversation with his condom companion and in the consumption of much brandy and water unhappily for georgie these halicon days were broken by intervals of storm and cloud the weak little woman was afflicted with that intermittent fever called jealousy and the stalwart thomas was one of those men who can scarcely give the time of day to a feminine acquaintance without some ornate and loud-spoken gallantry having no intellectual resources wherewith to beguile the tedium of his idle prosperous life he was fain to seek pleasure in the companionship of other men and thus became a haunter of tavern parlors and small race-courses always ready for any amusement his friends proposed to him it followed therefore that he was very often absent from his commonplace substantial home and his pretty weak-minded wife and poor georgie had ample food for her jealous fears and suspicions for where might a man not be who was so seldom at home she had never been particularly fond of her husband but that was no reason why she should not be particularly jealous about him and her jealousy betrayed itself in a peevish worrying fashion which was harder to bear than the vengeful ferocity of a Clytemnestra. It was in vain that Thomas Holliday, and those jolly good fellows his friends and companions, attested the Arcadian innocence of race-courses, and the perfect purity of that smoky atmosphere peculiar to tavernous parlours. Georgie's suspicions were too vague for refutation— but they were nevertheless sufficient ground for all the alternations of temper from stolid sulkiness to peevish whining from murmured lamentations to loud hysterics to which the female temperament is liable in the meantime poor honest loud-spoken tom did all in his power to demonstrate his truth and devotion he bought his wife as many stiff silk gowns and gaudy barlingford bonnets as she chose to sigh for he made a will, in which she was sole legatee and insured his life in different offices to the amount of five thousand pounds. "'I am the sort of fellow that's likely to go off the hook suddenly, you know, Georgie,' he said. "'And your poor dad was always anxious I should make things square for you. I don't suppose you're likely to marry again, my lass, so I've no need to tie up Lottie's little fortune.' i must trust someone, and i'd better confide in my little wife than some canting methodistical fellow of a trustee who would speculate my daughter's money upon some stock exchange hazard and leve it to australia when it was all swamped if you can't trust me georgie i'll let you see that i can trust you added tom reproachfully whereupon poor weak little miss halliday murmured plaintively that she did not want fortunes or life insurances but that she wanted her husband to stay at home content with the calm and rather sleepy delights of his own fireside poor tom was wont to promise amendment and would keep his promise faithfully so long as no supreme temptation in the shape of a visit from some friend of the jolly good fellow species arose to vanquish his good resolutions but a good-tempered, generous-hearted young man who farms his own land, has three or four good horses in his stable, a decent cellar of honest port and sherry, none of your wishy-washer sour-stuff in the way of hawk or claret, cried Tom Halliday, and a very comfortable balance at his banker's finds it no easy matter to shake off friends of the jolly-good-fellow fraternity.' In London, Mr. Halliday found the spirit of jolly dogism rampant. George Sheldon had always been his favourite of these two brothers, and it was George who lured him from the safe shelter of Fitzgeorge Street and took him to mysterious haunts, whence he returned long after midnight, boisterous of manner and unsteady gait, and with garments reeking of stale tobacco smoke. He was always good tempered. Even after these diabolical orgies on some unknown brocken, and protested indistinctly that there was no harm. Pon me where you know, Olger, George and me half dozen oysters, gar bottle of ale, stirt home, and much more to the same effect. When did any married man ever take more than a half a dozen oysters, or take any undomestic pleasure for his own satisfaction? it is always those incorrigible bachelors thomas richard or henry who hinder the unwilling benedict from returning to his sacred lares and panates poor georgie was not to be pacified by protestations about oysters and cigars from the lips of a husband who was thick of utterance and who betrayed a general imbecility of mind and unsteadiness of body this london excursion which had begun in the sunshine THREATENED TO END IN STORM AND DARKNESS. GEORGE SHELDON AND HIS SET HAD TAKEN POSSESSION OF THE YOUNG FARMER, AND GEORGIE HAD NO BETTER AMUSEMENT IN THE LONG, BLUSTEROUS MARCH EVENINGS THAN TO SIT AT HER WORK UNDER THE FLAMING GAS IN MR. SHELDON'S DRAWING-ROOM, WHILE THAT GENTLEMAN, WHO RARELY JOINED IN THE DISSIPATIONS OF HIS FRIEND AND HIS BROTHER, OCCUPIED HIMSELF WITH MECHANICAL DENTISTRY IN THE CHAMBER OF TORTURE BELOW. Fitzgeorge Street in general, always on the watch to discover evidences of impecuniosity or doubtful morality on the part of any one citizen in particular, could find no food for scandal in the visit of Mr. and Mrs. Halliday to their friend and countryman. It had been noised abroad, through the agency of Mrs. Wolper, that Mr. Sheldon had been a suitor for the lady's hand, and had been jilted by her the fitzgeorgians had been therefore especially on the alert to detect any sign of backsliding in the dentist there would have been much pleasant discussion in the kitchens and back parlours if mr sheldon had been particularly attentive to his fair guest but it speedily became known always by the agency of mrs wolper that the phenomenon of idleness and iniquity the london girl that mr sheldon was not by any means attentive to the pretty young woman from yorkshire but that he suffered her to sit alone hour after hour in her husband's absence with no amusement but her needlework wherewith to pass the time while he scraped and filed and polished those fragments of bone which were to assist in the renovation of decayed beauty the third week of mr and mrs halliday's visit was near its close and as yet the young farmer had arrived at no decision as to the subject which had brought him to london the sale of highly farm was an accomplished fact and the purchase-money duly bestowed at tom's bankers but very little had been done towards finding the new property which was to be a substitute for the estate his father and grandfather had farmed before him he had seen auctioneers and had brought home plans of estates in herefordshire and devonshire cornwall and somersetshire all of which seemed to be in their way the most perfect things imaginable land of such fertility as one could scarcely expect to find out of arcadia livestock which seemed beyond all price to be taken at a valuation roads and surrounding neighbourhood unparalleled in beauty and convenience outbuildings that must have been the very archetypes of barns and stables a house which to inhabit would be to adore but as yet he had seen none of these peerless domains he was waiting for decent weather in which to run down to the west and look about him as he said to himself in the meantime the blusterous march weather which was so unsuited to long railroad journeys and all that waiting about at junctions and at little windy stations on branch lines incidental to the inspection of estates scattered over a large area of country served very well for jolly-dogism and what with a hand at cards in george sheldon's chambers and another hand at cards in somebody else's chambers and a run-down to early meeting at newmarket and an evening at some rooms where there was something to be seen which was near as prize-fighting as the law allowed and other evenings in unknown regions. Mr. Halliday found time slipping by him, and his domestic peace vanishing away. It was on an evening at the end of this third week that Mr. Sheldon abandoned his mechanical dentistry for once in a way, and ascended to the drawing-room where poor Georgie sat busy with that eternal needlework, but for which melancholy madness would surely overtake many desolate matrons in houses whose commonplace comfort and respectable dullness are more dismal than the picturesque dreariness of a moated grange amid the lincolnshire fens to the masculine mind this needlework seems nothing more than a purposeless stabbing and sewing of strips of calico but to lonely womanhood it is the prison flower of the captive it is the spider of latude. mr sheldon brought his guest an evening newspaper there is an account of the opening of parliament he said which you may perhaps like to see i wish i had a piano or some female acquaintances to drop in upon you i'm afraid you must be dull in these long evenings when tom is out of the way i am indeed dull mrs halliday answered peevishly and if tom cared for me he wouldn't leave me like this evening after evening but he doesn't care for me "'Mr. Sheldon laid down the newspaper "'and seated himself opposite his guest. "'He sat for a few minutes in silence, "'beating time to some imaginary air "'with the tips of his fingers "'on the old-fashioned mahogany table. "'Then he said, with a half a smile upon his face, "'But surely Tom is the best of husbands. "'He has been a little wild "'since his coming to London, I know. "'But then you see he doesn't often come to town.' he's just as bad in yorkshire georgie answered gloomily he's always going to barlingford with somebody or other or to meet some of his old friends i'm sure if i had known what he was i would never have married him why i thought he was such a good husband he was telling me only a few days ago how he had made a will leaving you every sixpence he possesses without reservation and now he has insured his life for five thousand pounds yes i know that but i don't call that being a good husband i don't want him to leave me his money i don't want him to die i want him to stay at home poor tom i'm afraid he's not the sort of man for that kind of thing he likes change and amusement you married a rich man mrs holliday you made your choice you know without regard to the feelings of any one else you sacrifice truth and honour to your own inclination or your own interest i do not know and i do not ask which if the bargain has turned out a bad one that's your lookout. philip sheldon sat with his folded arms resting on the little table and fixed his eyes on georgie's face they could be very stern and hard and cruel those black eyes and mrs halliday grew first red and then pale under their searching gaze she had seen mr sheldon very often during the years of her married life but this was the first time he had ever said anything to her that sounded like a reproach the dentist's eyes softened a little as he watched her not without any special tenderness but with an expression of half disdainful compassion such as a strong stern man might feel for a foolish child. He could see that this woman was afraid of him, and it served his interests that she should fear him. He had a purpose in everything he did, and his purpose to-night was to test the strength of his influence over Georgina Halliday. In the old time before her marriage that influence had been very strong. It was for him to discover now whether it still endured— "'You made your choice, Mrs. Holliday,' he went on presently, "'and it was a choice which all prudent people must have approved. "'What chance had a man who was only heir to a practice worth four or five hundred pounds "'against the inheritor of Hiley Farm with its two hundred and fifty acres "'and three thousand pounds worth of livestock, plant, and working capital? "'When do the prudent people ever stop to consider truth and honour or old promises?' or an affection that dates from childhood they calculate everything by pounds shilling and pence and according to their mode of reckoning you were in the right when you jilted me to marry tom holliday georgie laid down her work and took out her handkerchief she was one of those women who take refuge in tears when they find themselves at a disadvantage tears had always melted honest tom was his wrath never so dire and tears would no doubt subdue Philip Sheldon. But Georgie had to discover that the dentist was made of stuff very different from that softer clay which composed the rollicking, good-tempered farmer. Mr. Sheldon watched her tears in the cold-blooded deliberation of a scientific experimentalist. He was glad to find that he could make her cry. She was a necessary instrument in the working out of certain plans that he had made for himself— and he was anxious to discover whether she was likely to be a plastic instrument he knew that her love for him had never been worth much at its best and that the poor little flickering flame had been utterly extinguished by nine years of commonplace domesticity and petty jealousy but his purpose was one that would be served as well by her fear as by her love and he had set himself to-night to gauge his power in relation to this poor weak creature. "'It is very unkind of you to say such dreadful things, Mr. Sheldon,' she whimpered presently. "'You know very well that my marriage with Tom was Pa's doing and not mine. I'm sure if I had known how he would stay out night after night, and come home in such dreadful states time after time, I never would have consented to marry him.' "'Wouldn't you?' oh yes you would if you were a widow to-morrow and free to marry again you would choose just such another man as tom a man who laughs loud and pays flourishing compliments and drives a gig with a high-stepping horse that's the sort of man women like and that's the sort of man you'd marry i'm sure i wouldn't marry at all answered mrs halliday in a voice that was broken by little gasping sobs "'I've seen enough of the misery of married life, "'but I don't want Tom to die, unkind as he is to me. "'People are always saying that he won't make old bones. "'How horrid it is to talk of a person's bones! "'And I'm sure I sometimes make myself wretched about him, "'as he knows, though he doesn't thank me for it.' And here Mrs. Halliday's sob got the better of her utterance, and Mr. Sheldon was fain to say something of a consolatory nature come come he said i won't tease you any more that's against the laws of hospitality isn't it only there are some things which you can't expect a man to forget you know however let bygones be bygones as for poor old tom i dare say he'll live to be a hale hardy old man in spite of the croakers people always will croak about something "'and it's a kind of fashion to say that a big, hardy, six-foot man "'is a fragile blossom, likely to be nipped by any wintry blast. "'Come, come, Mrs. Halliday. "'Your husband mustn't discover that I've been making you cry when he comes home. "'He may be home early this evening, perhaps, "'and if he is, we'll have an oyster supper and a chat about old times.' "'Mrs. Halliday shook her head dolefully. "'It's past ten o'clock already,' she said and i don't suppose tom will come home till after twelve he doesn't like my sitting up for him but i wonder what time he would come home if i didn't sit up for him let's hope for the best exclaimed mr sheldon cheerfully i'll go see about the oysters don't get them for me or for tom protested mrs halliday he will have had his supper when he comes home you may be sure and i couldn't eat a morsel of anything to this resolution Mrs. Halliday adhered, so the dentist was fain to abandon all jovial ideas in relation to oysters and pale ale, but he did not go back to his mechanical dentistry. He sat opposite his visitor, and watched her, silently and thoughtfully, for some time as she worked. She had brushed away her tears, but she looked very peevish and miserable, and took out her watch several times in an hour mr sheldon had made two or three feeble attempts at conversation but the talk languished and expired on each occasion and they sat on in silence little by little the dentist's attention seemed to wander away from his guest he wheeled his chair around and looked at the fire with the same fixed gloom upon his face which had darkened it on the night of his return from yorkshire things had been so desperate with him of late that he had lost his old orderly habit of thinking out a business at one sitting and making an end of all deliberation and hesitation about it there were subjects that forced themselves upon his thoughts and certain ideas which repeated themselves with stupid persistence he was such an eminently practical man that this disorder of his brain troubled him more even than the thoughts that made the disorder he sat in the same attitude for a long while, scarcely conscious of Mrs. Halliday's presence, not at all conscious of the progress of time. Georgie had been right in her gloomy forebodings of bad behavior on the part of Mr. Halliday. It was nearly one o'clock when a loud double-knock announced the gentleman's return. The wind had been howling drearily and a sharp, slanting rain had been pattering against the windows for the last half-hour, while Mrs. Halliday's breast had been racked by the contending emotions of anxiety and indignation. "'I suppose he couldn't get a cab!' she exclaimed, as the knocking startled her from her listening attitude. For however intently a midnight watcher may be listening for the returning wanderer's knock, it is not the less startling when it comes.' "'And he has walked home through the wet, "'and now he'll have a violent cold, I dare say,' "'added Georgie, peevishly. "'Then it's lucky for him he's in a doctor's house,' "'answered Mr. Sheldon with a smile. "'He was a handsome man, no doubt, "'according to the popular idea of masculine perfection. "'But he had not a pleasant smile.' i went through the regular routine you know and i'm as well able to see a patient safely through a cold or fever as i am to make him a set of teeth mr halliday burst into the room at this moment singing a fragment of the coffin crow chorus very much out of tune he was in boisterously high spirits and very little worse for the liquor he had only walked from convent garden he said and had taken nothing but a tankard of stout and a welch rarebit he had been hearing the divinest singing boys with voices of angels and had been taking his supper in a place which duchesses themselves did not disdain to peep at from the sacred recesses of a lodge grilly. george sheldon had told him but poor country-bred georgina holiday could not believe in the duchesses or the angelic singing boys or the primitive simplicity of Welsh rarebits. She had a vision of beautiful women, and halls of dazzling light, where there was the mad music of perpetual posthorn gallops, with the riotous accompaniment of hooses and the popping of champagne corks, where the sheen of satin and the glitter of gems bewildered the eye of the beholder. She had seen such a picture once on the stage, and had vaguely associated it with all Tom's midnight roisterings ever afterwards. The roisterer's garments were very wet, and it was in vain that his wife and Philip Sheldon entreated him to change them for dry ones, or to go to bed immediately. He stood before the fire relating his innocent adventures, and trying to dispel the cloud from Georgie's fair young brow, and when he did at last consent to go to his room, the dentist shook his head ominously you'll have a severe cold tomorrow, depend on it tom and you'll have yourself to thank for it he said as he bade the good-tempered probate good-night never mind old fellow answered tom if i am ill you shall nurse me if one is doomed to die by the doctor stuff it's better to have a doctor one knows than a doctor one doesn't know for one's executioner after which graceful piece of humour, Mr. Halliday went blundering up the staircase, followed by his aggrieved wife. Philip Sheldon stood on the landing, looking after his visitors for some minutes. Then he went slowly back to the sitting-room, where he replenished the fire and seated himself before it with a newspaper in his hand. "'What's the use of going to bed if I can't sleep?' he muttered in a discontented tone. CHAPTER Four. A PERPLEXING ILLNESS Mr. Sheldon's prophecy was fully realized. Tom Halliday awoke the next day with a violent cold in his head. Like most big, boisterous men of herculean build, he was the veriest craven in the hour of physical ailment. So he succumbed at once to the malady which a man obliged to face the world and fight for his daily bread must needs have made light of. The dentist rallied his invalid friend. "'Keep to your bed if you like, Tom,' he said. "'But there's no necessity for any such coddling. "'As your hands are hot and your tongue rather queer, "'I may as well give you a saline draft "'You'll be all right by dinner-time, "'and I'll get George to look round in the evening for a hand at cards.' Tom obeyed his professional friend, took his medicine, read the newspaper, and slept away the best part of the dull March day. At half-past five he got up and dressed for dinner, and the evening passed very pleasantly. So pleasantly, indeed, that Georgie was half inclined to wish that her husband might be afflicted with chronic influenza, whereby he would be compelled to stop at home. She sighed when Philip Sheldon slapped his friend's broad shoulder, and told him cheerily that he would be all right to-morrow. He would be well again, AND THERE WOULD BE MORE MIDNIGHT ROYSTERING, AND SHE WOULD BE AGAIN TORMENTED BY THAT VISION OF LIGHTED HALLS AND BEAUTIFUL, DIABOLICAL CREATURES, REVOLVING MADLY TO THE MUSIC OF THE POST HORN GALLOP. IT SEEMED, HOWEVER, THAT POOR, JEALOUS MRS. HALLIDAY WAS TO BE SPARED HER NIGHTLY AGONY FOR SOME TIME TO COME. TOM'S COLD LASTED LONGER THAN HE EXPECTED, AND THE COLD WAS SUCCEEDED BY A LOW FEVER, A bilious FEVER. Mr. Sheldon said. There was not the least occasion for alarm, of course. The invalid and the invalid's wife trusted implicitly in the friendly doctor, who assured them, both, that Tom's attack was the most ordinary kind of thing. A little wearing, no doubt, but entirely without danger. He had to repeat this assurance very often to Georgie, whose angry feelings had given place to extreme tenderness and affection now that tom was an invalid quite unfitted for the society of jolly good fellows and willing to receive basins of beef-tea and arrowroot meekly from his wife's hands instead of those edibles of iniquity oysters and toasted cheese mr halliday's illness was very tiresome IT WAS ONE OF THOSE PERPLEXING COMPLAINTS WHICH KEEP THE PATIENT HIMSELF, AND THE PATIENT'S FRIENDS AND attendants IN PERPETUAL UNCERTAINTY. A LITTLE WORSE ONE DAY, AND A SHADE BETTER THE NEXT, NOW GAINING A LITTLE STRENGTH, NOW LOSING A TRIFLE MORE THAN HE HAD GAINED. THE PATIENT DECLINED IN SO IMPERCEPTIBLE A MANNER THAT HE HAD BEEN ILL THREE WEEKS, AND WAS NO LONGER ABLE TO LEAVE HIS BED and had lost alike his appetite and his spirits, before Georgie awoke to the fact that this illness, hitherto considered so lightly, must be very serious. "'I think, if—if if you have no objection, I should like to see another doctor, Mr. Sheldon,' she said one day, with considerable embarrassment of manner. She feared to offend her host by any doubt of his skill. "'You see, you—you you are so much employed with teeth,' and of course you know i'm quite assured of your talent but don't you think that a doctor who had more experience in fever cases might bring tom around quicker he's been ill so long now and really he doesn't seem to be getting any better philip sheldon shrugged his shoulders as you please my dear mrs halliday he said carelessly i don't wish to press my services upon you it's quite a matter of friendship you know and I shall not profit sixpence by my attendance on poor old Tom. Call in another doctor, by all means, if you think fit to do so. But, of course, in that event, I must withdraw from the case. The man you call in may be clever, or he may be stupid and ignorant. It's all a chance, when one doesn't know one's man, and I really can't advise you upon that point, for I know nothing of the London profession.' Georgie looked alarmed. This was a new view of the subject. She had fancied that all the regular practitioners were clever, and had only doubted Mr. Sheldon because he was not a regular practitioner. But how, if she were to withdraw her husband from the hands of a clever man to deliver him into the care of an ignorant pretender, simply because she was over-anxious for his recovery? "'I always am foolishly anxious about things,' she thought and then she looked piteously at mr sheldon and said what do you think i ought to do pray tell me he has eaten no breakfast again this morning and even the cup of tea which i persuaded him to take seemed to disagree with him and then there is that dreadful sore throat which torments him so what ought i to do mr sheldon whatever seems best to yourself mrs holliday answered the dentist earnestly IT IS A SUBJECT ON WHICH I CANNOT PRETEND TO ADVISE YOU. IT IS A MATTER OF FEELING RATHER THAN OF REASON, AND IT IS A MATTER OF WHICH YOU YOURSELF MUST DETERMINE. IF I KNEW ANY MAN WHOM I COULD HONESTLY RECOMMEND TO YOU, IT WOULD BE ANOTHER AFFAIR. BUT I DON'T. TOM'S ILLNESS IS THE SIMPLEST THING IN THE WORLD, AND I FEEL MYSELF QUITE COMPETENT TO PULL HIM THROUGH IT, WITHOUT FUSS OR BOTHER. BUT IF YOU THINK OTHERWISE, Pray, put me out of the question. There is one fact, however, of which I am bound to remind you. Like many big stalwart fellows of his stamp, your husband is as nervous as a hysterical woman, and if you call in a strange doctor, who will pull long faces and put on the professional solemnity, the chances are that he'll take alarm and do himself more mischief in a few hours than your new adviser can undo in as many weeks. There was a little pause after this. Georgie's opinions and suspicions and anxieties were alike vague, and this last suggestion of Mr. Sheldon's put things in a new and alarming light. She was really anxious about her husband, but she had been accustomed all her life to accept the opinion of other people in preference to her own. "'Do you really think that Tom will soon be well and strong again?' she asked presently if i thought otherwise i should be the first to advise other measures however my dear mrs holliday call in some one else for your own satisfaction no said georgie sighing plaintively it might frighten tom you are quite right mr sheldon he is very nervous and the idea that i was alarmed might alarm him i trust in you pray try to bring him round again you will try won't you she asked in the childish pleading way which was peculiar to her the dentist was searching for something in the drawer of a table and his back was turned on the anxious questioner you may depend upon it i'll do my best mrs Halliday. he answered but still busy at the drawer mr sheldon the younger had paid many visits to fitzgeorge street during tom Halliday's illness George and Tom had been the Damon and Pythias of Barlingford, and George seemed really distressed when he found his friend changed for the worse. The changes in the invalid were so puzzling, the alterations from better to worse, from worse to better, so frequent that fear could take no hold upon the minds of the patient's friends. It seemed such a very slight affair, this low fever though sufficiently inconvenient to the patient himself who suffered a good deal from thirst and sickness and showed an extreme disinclination for food all which symptoms mr sheldon said were the commonest and simplest features of a very mild attack of bilious fever which would leave tom a better man than it had found him there had been several pleasant little card-parties during the earlier stages of mr halliday's illness but within the last week the patient had been too low and weak for cards, too weak to read the newspaper, or even to bear having it read to him. When George came to look at his old friend, to cheer you up, a little old fellow, you know, and so on, he found Tom, for the time being, past all capability of being cheered, even by the genial society of his favorite jolly good fellow, or by tidings of a steeplechase in yorkshire in which a neighbor had gone to grief over a double fence that chap upstairs seems rather queerish george said to his brother after finding tom lower and weaker than usual he's in a bad way isn't he phil no there's nothing serious the matter with him he's rather low to-night that's all rather low echoed george sheldon he seems to me so very low that he can't sink much lower without going to the bottom of his grave i'd call someone in if i were you the dentist shrugged his shoulders and made a little contemptuous noise with his lips if you knew as much of the doctors as i do you wouldn't be in any hurry to trust a friend to the mercy of one he said carelessly don't you alarm yourself about tom he's right enough "'He's been in a state of chronic overeating "'and overdrinking for the last ten years, "'and this bilious fever will be the making of him.' "'Will it?' said George doubtfully, "'and then there followed a little pause, "'during which the brothers happened to look at each other furtively "'and happened to surprise each other in the act. "'I don't know about overeating or drinking,' said George presently, "'but something has disagreed with Tom Halliday.' That's very evident. End of book the first, part two.